Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Last time, we looked at the major categories the scriptures use to answer the question, why did Jesus die? This time, We'll take a journey through church history, making stops along the way to see how our forebearers have made sense of the crucifixion of our Lord. You'll learn about these seven theories. Ransom, Christus Victor, Moral Exemplar, Satisfaction, Penal Substitution, Governmental, and Communal Substitution. For each one of these, I quote someone from church history who advocated for that position, as well as offer some criticisms, and then in the end, offer a way forward Essentially, my goal here is not to tell you what to think about this particular issue so much as inform you what the options are. This episode is actually a talk I gave at a Restoration Fellowship theological conference back in 2016. So you can access the full paper that goes along with this talk at restitutio.org. I have it under articles. I thought this would fit in really well just after going through the scriptural evidence for the atonement, which we did last time. Those are obviously the non-negotiables. And then this time, we're getting into theology, trying to ask the question, well, how do we fit all these scriptures together? What is what, What is the main overarching theory or analogy that we can use to understand this and make sense of it all? So I thought this would fit in really well here in this class. Here now is Theology Part 18, Atonement Theories. There are probably 5,000 theories of atonement, but I'm just picking the big ones. My goal for this paper and this presentation is not to settle in your minds the right view or to advocate for a strong position. It's more to give you a lay of the land, to survey what the different options are out there, because you can look up atonement in the Stanford Encyclopedia, or you can look it up in the Catholic Encyclopedia or a Bible dictionary, and you're never going to get all of these. They're going to give you the, the three, or they're going to give you four, or just these two. You know, you read the Catholic Encyclopedia, it'll talk about the various Catholic theories, but then when it gets to the Protestant theories, it's all just very negative, which you would expect. And so what I want to do is just lay out for you these seven different theories and offer some criticisms to each one. And then in the conclusion, I may get as bold as to offer something. Okay, are you ready? Ransom. This is the idea that Satan has legal rights to hold humankind captive. Through Christ's death, God pays the devil a ransom to free us. This is an ancient Christian view that looks at the whole subject from that perspective of paying a ransom for setting a captive free. So it's it's rather like Job 2.0, where instead of Satan coming to God and saying, do you see Job? God comes to Satan and he says, let my people go. And Satan says, I'm not letting them go. They owe me all this debt. They're under my legal rights. And God says, all right, how much is it going to cost? And and Satan says, well, it's going to cost everything. The, The most valuable thing to you, your only son. And God says, all right, I will pay the debt to set these people free. But then people started thinking about it, and they're like, well, Satan would probably never do that. 
He would probably never let God redeem all the captives. So God would probably have to outmaneuver the devil. He would have to deceive the devil into unwittingly handing over all the captives. That's what we find in Augustine of Hippo. He writes, But the Redeemer came, and the seducer was overcome. And what did our Redeemer to him who held us captive? For our ransom he held out his cross as a trap. He placed in it as a bait his blood. He indeed had power to shed his blood. He did not attain to drink it. And in that he, Satan, shed the blood of him who was no debtor, he was commanded to render up the debtors. And so God, through Christ, tricks the devil into overreaching, overstepping his legal rights. And he kills someone over whom he has no right because he never sinned. And so God and Jesus basically plot together to deceive the devil into freeing us all. That's the ransom idea as it's been historically developed. You know, maybe you like some aspects of that, some aspects you don't like. But here are some criticisms. One, it gives Satan too much authority. Seems like Satan's really in control of a lot here. Number two, if Satan is himself an outlaw, how does he have rights over others? Look, if you're on the run for killing somebody and then somebody steals 20 bucks from you, I'd like to see you get justice. I'd like to see you go into a courtroom and be like, he stole $20. As soon as they catch you, they're going to put you on trial for murder. You know, like you don't really have any bargaining rights for that 20 bucks. And number three, why does God need to make a deal with the devil? Seriously, why does God need to make deals with the devil? Can't he just bind the strong man and plunder his house? And so that brings us to the next idea, which is spiritual warfare, not a deal struck between God and the devil, but a raid where God raids the devil and forcibly takes back his people. And this idea is called Christus Victor. It's the idea of Christ the conqueror. Here, in this second theory of the atonement, Satan has captured humanity through spiritual warfare. Satan hasn't, he doesn't have legal rights over us. He stole us. He ensnared us. He deceived us. And he captured us. However, through Jesus' ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ defeats the devil and his minions, freeing humanity from captivity. And here's Irenaeus in the second century. He writes, For he fought and conquered. For he was man contending for the fathers, and through obedience doing away with disobedience completely. For he bound the strong man and set free the weak, and endowed his own handiwork with salvation by destroying sin. For he is a most holy and merciful Lord and loves the human race. For unless man had overcome the enemy of man, the enemy would not have been legitimately vanquished. So it's the idea of Christus Victor, Christ the conqueror, who defeats evil in order to free humanity. Here are some criticisms of the Christus Victor position. It devalues sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Everything is done for you. In fact, humanity is completely, and sin is is completely really absent from the the theory. It's a spiritual warfare theory. So you have Christ defeating the devil. You're basically irrelevant to that situation. Satan forcibly captured us. Christ forcibly frees us. So what about our responsibility in the whole situation. What about our sin? What about our repentance? What about our forgiveness? Number two, it's not clear how the crucifixion defeats spiritual evil. And number three, typically the New Testament associates Christ's ascension with spiritual victory. So in other words, 
there are a handful of texts that attach his death to defeating evil. And I already read one to you earlier. But the problem is, more frequently, much more frequently, it's his ascension that's associated with the cosmic victory. Like, for example, in Colossians. Here is one advocate of Christus Victor, Gregory Boyd, lamenting how weak the Bible is on the theory that he espouses. He says, Obviously, this account leaves unanswered a number of questions we might like answered. E.g., precisely, how did Calvary and the resurrection defeat the powers? In my estimation, the ancient Christus Victor models of the atonement, like some other models, became incredulous precisely because they too vigorously pressed for details. We must humbly acknowledge that our understanding is severely limited. In other words, the Bible doesn't really talk about this way of thinking much. So we're going to still believe in it, but not try to fill in the details too much. Well, historically, that's not really been satisfying. But a third one here is the moral exemplar. Christ goes to the cross as an example to us. So Jesus' death works subjectively, not objectively. Christ's sinless life and heroic death are examples for us to follow. His death inspires us to live morally. So you can see with the first three views here, when we look at ransom, there are biblical texts that say Christ died as a ransom. That's part of the non-negotiables. Number two, there are biblical texts that say Christ defeated evil when he died. And number three, there are biblical texts that say Christ's death is to provide an example. But the issue with each of the, these three views, the ransom view, the Christus Victor, and the moral exemplar, is that they just isolate one aspect of what the Bible says and say, this is what atonement is all about, and sort of ignore everything else. And so each of them is inadequate on its own as a theory. So that's another aspect of it. Here is Peter Abelard, an intriguing fellow from the 12th century who espoused the moral exemplar. He was used to hearing about the ransom theory and he didn't like it. And so he said, you know what? We need to look at Christ as an example. Stop looking at him as a ransom paid to the devil. That gives the devil too much authority. So this is what Peter Abelard writes in his own words. How very cruel and unjust it seems that someone should require the blood of an innocent person as a ransom. Nevertheless, his son received our nature, and in that nature, teaching us both by word and by example, persevered to the death and bound us to himself even more through love, so that when we have been kindled by so great a benefit of divine grace, true charity might fear to endure nothing for his sake. In other words, his death inspires in us a desire and an ability to follow his example and live righteously. Criticisms. How is it just for God to forgive sin? Why did Jesus need to die by crucifixion to provide an example? How did Christ bear our sins if his death is unconnected to our redemption? The awkwardness of the moral exemplar theory is that it, it really doesn't have anything to do with the cross per se. I mean, Jesus could have died of a disease and it would have just been as, as well. It's not clear all those texts bearing our sins that we find in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, how that all works with an exemplar view. So I think the exemplar view, just like the ransom of the Christus Victor, I think there are aspects of it that are true, but none of them is going to satisfy. And now, finally, we're on satisfaction. View number four. And so this is the idea of paying a debt, pioneered by Anselm 
in the 11th century. We owe God complete obedience. You guys agree with that? We owe God complete obedience. He's our creator. He ordains how we should live. And so it's our responsibility to live in, in line with what God says is right. Sins create a debt we must pay God. So every time somebody sins or humanity sins, if you want to look at it as a group, there's an incurred debt. How can you pay that debt back? If you just started living righteously and doing everything right, you already owe that. So you can never pay back. Even the most righteous person in the world, if they've sinned even just once, would still never be able to pay back the debt they owe to God. So Anselm decides, God became a man to offer payment on our behalf. And the name of his book is Why God Became Man. And he was trying to figure out how that all worked. By living perfectly and dying, Jesus overpaid what he owed, satisfying God's requirement. And here's Anselm of Canterbury himself. He says, Therefore, the honor taken away must be repaid, or punishment must follow. Otherwise, either God will not be just to himself, or he will be weak in respect to both parties. And this it is impious even to think of. No man except this one ever gave to God what he was not obliged to lose or paid a debt he did not owe. And so Christ owed perfect obedience to God. Christ fulfilled that. That's what he owed. But then he goes to the point of offering his life, which he did not owe because he had perfect obedience. And so Christ overpays God and satisfies the debt on behalf of all of humanity. And for Anselm, it's very important for him to say there's an even transaction occurring. And so Christ has to be God because, and you hear this all the time today, right? Christ had to be God because if he wasn't God, he couldn't pay for our sins. That's a medieval monk speaking. I know modern Protestants are saying it all the time, but that's a medieval monkish mindset. And that's what we get from Anselm of Canterbury. Now, we have some criticisms of that. One is that making satisfaction excludes forgiveness. This is a point that the Socinians made against Anselm. Of course, the Socinians are six centuries later. But uh, there's nothing like arguing with a dead person, you know, because they can't, they can't write a book back or whatever. So you, eventually you're going to win that one, I think. But to a free... Forgiveness, nothing is more opposite than such a satisfaction as they contend for, and the payment of an equivalent price. For where a creditor is satisfied either by the debtor himself or by another person on the debtor's behalf, it cannot with truth be said of him that he freely forgives the debt. So that's the Rakovian Catechism pointing out that there's a problem with this satisfaction view, as Anselm put it forward. If it's true, then God does not forgive sins. Well, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. What about you? Didn't we read a verse earlier that Jesus said himself at the Last Supper, here's my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins? So that's a problem. Number two is a devastating critique called the justice worry. Let's say somebody goes to, to court for murder, and the judge is there in the courtroom, and just at the last minute, the perpetrator, his mother, stands up and says, take me instead, put me to death, give me capital punishment, let my son go free. And the judge says, all right, I accept. And so they execute the mother in the place of her son. That's a double injustice. Injustice number one, the murderer goes free. That's an injustice, right? 
If you commit murder and you go free, that's an injustice. We're all in agreement on that. Injustice number two is an innocent person got punished. If you were the victim in that case, would you feel that justice had been done because the guy's mother took the punishment? No, you'd be doubly angry. Now he's going free and his mother's dead. And she was a sweet woman. It's a classic criticism called the justice worry. Don't worry, I think we have a way out of that. But I think you need to at least feel the tension of it for a minute before we bring a solution. Number three, it reduces Christ's passion and death to a cold transaction. That's another problem with this satisfaction theory. And number four, God accepting a sacrifice is what makes it efficacious, not equal value. If you look at the temple and the sacrifices from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew system of worship, it's never equal payment. Never, not once, is there a human sacrifice. It's always an animal for a human, right? And so if you think about the Day of Atonement, what animal was responsible for the sins of the nation? The goat. The one that lived or the one that died? The one that lived. So the goat doesn't even die. The one that died was to make atonement for the holy place, to basically cleanse the tabernacle area. It wasn't for the people's sin. The one that lived carried their sin away into the wilderness. This whole idea that like, it's always got to be an equal transaction for God to accept the sacrifice is false. It sounds good, and since Anselm, people have thought that, but that's not the pattern we see in the Bible. It's really not. For example, there's an Old Testament law about an ox. If the ox gores somebody and you knew it was the goring type and that person died, then whoever owns the ox, who should have known better, that person should be put to death. And then it says, unless he pays a ransom for his life. And it's like, whoa, is that equal payment? I mean, like what dollar amount are we talking about here, right? Of course, it's not going to be an equal payment for someone's human life. It's going to be whatever the victim would have required of that person, or they could, they could insist on the death penalty in that case. I want to take an excursus, just swing to the side for a second. I want to look at how belief in Christ's deity affects atonement, because you've just heard me talking about this in the satisfaction theory. So I want to just handle this for a second, and I want to look at two advantages and three disadvantages, and then move back to theories five, six, and seven. Here are two advantages to believing Jesus is God when it comes to the doctrine of the atonement. Equity. Jesus had to be God to pay for all of our sins. Look, whether it's true or not, people love that. It just makes mathematical sense to us. And it's just like, oh, that's so, that's so even. You know, like God is infinitely offended and God's life is infinitely valuable. And so God dies. Let's just call it even. There's kind of an advantage to, to thinking about it from that perspective. Number two is the emotion. God left everything to become man and die for us. I mean, there's a strong emotional pull in that sense. And look, I'm sure if God could have died for our sins, he would have. I'm sure of it. He loves us so much that he would have died for us. But the problem with being God is you can't die. You're immortal. Right? And so it would be emotionally beautiful, and I, I can admire it as an outsider, but it doesn't overcome these three in my opinion, devastating disadvantages. The first of which is what I call intra-Trinitarian sleight of hand. This is just so well put by the philosopher Robin Collins that I, I have to just quote it directly. Stick with me, and if your mental eyes cross, just tune out, we'll, we'll come back in a second. 
To see the problem clearly, first note that if we consider God the Son as one with God the Father, the atonement under the satisfaction view simply amounts to God paying God, which is equivalent to God forgiving the debt. So that's the one self-Trinitarian view. On the other hand, if we consider God the Son as distinct from God the Father, the question arises, who pays the debt we owe to God the Son because of our sin against Him? If Christ, that is, God the Son pays it, that is equivalent to God the Son paying Himself and hence forgiving it. But if God the Son can forgive the debt we owe Him, why can't the Father do the same? I thought they were one God. So either way you look at it, it turns out that God the Father can simply forgive our debt without demanding repayment, contrary to the central claim of the satisfaction theory. What this is saying is, look, the Trinity might get you out of certain problems, but at the other hand, God's paying himself off, which is awkward. Well, this is difficult to conceive of as a multiple person being. But let's say my one hand is the Father, my other hand is the Son. The Father says, I'm really angry at those humans. You know, they owe me all this debt. I must be satisfied. And then the Son says, well, I, I, can, I can pay you and reaches out and gives the other hand like a bunch of money. And then, and then this hand goes back in and says, all right, I'm satisfied now. I just paid myself, right? So, I mean, there's, there's an inherent inter-Trinitarian logical sleight of hand uh, going on there. Uh, number two disadvantage is that it devalues the cross due to the incarnation and assumption of impersonal human nature. Those are two separate issues that I rolled into one. The first is, look, if God became man, and, and Robin Collins has an incarnational view of the atonement, the problem is that now the cross isn't really that significant. What's really significant is not that he shucked off the impersonal human nature by experiencing death. What really is important is that he became man in the first place. If you look at the Bible, where's the emphasis? I mean, I showed you eight reasons from the Bible in eight different verses. There was nothing in there about his birth. What's significant when it comes to the doctrine of the atonement, is his life and his death especially. That's not to say his birth isn't important in general. Obviously it is, born to be the Messiah and so on. But when it comes to the atonement, what the belief of Christ's deity does is it pulls you too much towards his birth and it, it just devalues the cross itself. And besides, if a God person unites with impersonal human nature, so then the person is God the Son, but who has his divine nature, and then you have the human nature, but it's not a human person. You see what I'm saying? And that's what dies. If impersonal human nature dies, that's less valuable than if a person dies, a human person. So a Unitarian view of atonement is actually putting a higher price on sin than a Trinitarian view because a whole person dies. The last one, there seems to be an inherent contradiction, not just a paradox or a sleight of hand, but a contradiction. And that is, which I already mentioned, that God is immortal, which means you cannot die, right? So he can't die for our sins. And it doesn't really matter what your definition of death is. Like, let's say death is separating your soul from your body. Let's say you believe that. That's what he can't do if he's immortal. Your definition of death is completely irrelevant. Whatever it is, that's what he can't do because Immortal, by definition, means you can't die. So that's another major disadvantage to believing in Christ's deity when it comes to the atonement. Let's get back to our seven theories. We're on five. Penal substitution. This is the law court theory pioneered mostly by 
John Calvin. Martin Luther had a little to say about it, but John Calvin and Philip Melanchthon developed it more. This is the idea that human sin provokes God's wrath. If God is just, he must punish sin. Jesus bore the penalty of our sin, which is God's wrath, as our substitute on the cross. And here is an expression of that by John Calvin himself from the 16th century. Christ interposed, took the punishment upon himself, and bore what by the just judgment of God was impending over sinners. With his own blood, expiated the sins which rendered them hateful to God. By this expiation, satisfied and duly propitiated God the Father. By this intercession, appeased his anger, and on this basis found peace between God and men. Like there's every atonement vocabulary word in the book right there. I love it. But you have the justice worry again. What's the justice worry? Why is Jesus suffering the penalty of my sin? So with satisfaction, he's paying it with his life. With penal substitution, he's suffering the penalty due to us. Okay, so it's a slight difference. And usually penal substitution people isolate that penalty as being God's wrath. In satisfaction, God is owed our obedience. Jesus obeys completely all the way to the point of death, satisfying God's requirement. In penal substitution, God's mad. He's mad at humanity. And so he's going to pour out all that anger and wrath and indignation on Jesus on the cross. And Jesus will exhaust God's wrath. And so he's not angry at us anymore. Okay, so they're similar but different. The problem is you have somebody once again suffering in, in the place of others who is innocent. And then the next is that the son comes to save us from the father. That's awkward. Right? Isn't this all supposed to be God's love behind it all? I think we need to be saved from a lot of things, but not from God. Jesus does not fully pay for our sins because he didn't suffer eternally. People who believe in penal substitution, such as John Calvin, also believe in eternal conscious torment. That's the everlasting flames of hell, right? So if that's what the penalty is for sin, that's what Jesus has to suffer. And after three days, if you get him out of the flames, he didn't suffer eternal conscious torment. He suffered three days conscious torment, which is not equivalent to the penalty of our sins. So that doesn't work. Also, if if the penalty of our sins is eternal death, Christ didn't suffer that either because he was only dead three days, right? So there's something to think about. Last point there, it, it looks like a human sacrifice to appease an angry pagan god. That's not good. <laughs> this is a, a great point Robin Collins makes. He talks about the prodigal son. This is what he writes. But his father responded, this is after the son returned. Father, make me a hired servant, you know. But his father responded, I cannot simply forgive you for what you have done. Not even so much as to make you one of my hired men. You have insulted my honor by your wild living. Simply to forgive you would be to trivialize sin. It would be against the moral order of the entire universe. But Father, please, the son began to plead. No, the father said, either you must be punished or you must pay back through hard labor for as long as you shall live the honor you stole from me. Then the elder brother spoke up. Father, I will pay the debt that he owes. And it came to pass that the elder brother took on the garb of a servant and labored hard year after year. And finally, when the elder brother died of exhaustion, the father's wrath was placated against his younger son, and they lived happily for the remainder of their days. Now, does that look like a picture of the atonement to you? No. 
No, it doesn't. That looks like an angry father who's, who's completely unbending and unyielding. How does the parable actually go? Well, the father forgives him and restores him to that relationship. We'll look at that again in a minute. On to number six, and I can almost guarantee you've probably never heard of this theory before. It's not very popular, but it is so cool. <laughs> and, so, and, it's, and it's old, too. It's from the 1600s, so might as well go there. It's called the Governmental Theory of Atonement, pioneered by Hugo Grotius, who also had a sweet name, so it's another reason to look at it. This is the idea that God is the governor of the world who acts on behalf of the common good. So God is not a creditor to whom a debt is owed. He is not a judge enforcing justice in a courtroom. God is a governor who's trying to manage the entire world. God can relax the amount he requires. God can lessen the debt he requires to be paid. So the cross satisfies a partial payment and shows God takes sin seriously and it provides an example to overcome sin and inspires people to live righteously. So in other words, looking at God as the moral governor of the universe, the cross makes sense because it shows the sinfulness of sin, the horror of sin, the seriousness of it, and it provides this example. But it isn't equal to all the sins of the world. And that's okay because God is the judge and he can relax the payment if he so chooses. Just like if somebody owes you $100 and they say to you, I can't pay it, and you say, all right, well, what can you pay? And they say, I can just pay you 20. You say, all right, pay me the 20 and we're even. Is that unjust? Nobody would say that's unjust. They would just say you're being generous. There's no injustice there. There's just generosity. Here's Hugo in his own words from the 17th century. God has therefore most weighty reasons for punishing, especially if we are permitted to estimate the magnitude and multitude of sins. So sin's serious, and God needs to punish it. That's what he's saying there. But because among all his attributes, love of the human race is preeminent, God was willing, though he could have justly punished the sins of all men with deserved and legitimate punishment, that is, with eternal death, and had reasons for so doing, he was, because of his love, willing to spare those who believe in Christ. But since we must be spared either by setting forth or not setting forth some example against so many great sins, in his most perfect wisdom he chose that way by which he could manifest more of his attributes at once, viz. both clemency and severity, or his hate of sin and care for the preservation of his law. Hugo Grotius was a pioneer in international law. And so for him thinking of God as a moral governor of the universe who's doing the maximal benefit for the most people made sense. We also still have some criticisms, though. We still have to take the justice worry seriously because, once again, Christ is innocent. He doesn't deserve punishment, and he's receiving punishment. And then uh, Christ does not bear our sins on the cross uh, from this perspective. There's no mention of him bearing. There are lots of scriptures that say he bore our sins. So the governmental theory is not going to get us all the way home. My last one that I want to survey, I heard on Dale Tuggy's excellent podcast, the Trinity's podcast, was put forward by Joshua Thoreau, who writes about communal substitution. And he claims, and I think he's probably right, that he solved the justice worry. Here's how it goes. Humanity as a group has sinned. We can agree with that, right? Let's look at this example by Josh. First, consider an example of an individual wrongdoing. A basketball player intentionally punches another player during a game. You got it in your mind? 
right? Somebody, punch, you know, maybe they got blocked and they're shooting and they got frustrated and they just punched the other guy, right? The league rightly finds the offending player. It seems wrong for someone other than the offending player, such as a teammate, his fans, his mother, to pay this fine. The guy who threw the punch should pay the fine, right? We all agree on that? I mean, it seems fair. It's not deep law here. It's just general fairness. Fines for violent offenses ought to be paid by the offender himself. Next, consider a case involving the same kind of wrongdoing, instead at the collective level. A basketball team, notice it's a team now, gets into a fight with another team during a game. The commissioner decides to punish the offending team, not simply each individual fighting player with a fine. Now, there are lots of morally acceptable ways for the team to pay the fine. The players could each contribute some money. One player, even if he didn't himself throw any punches, could decide to foot it for the team. The coach could decide to foot it for the team. Again, even if he didn't throw any punches. And so what Thoreau is talking about here is the difference between an individual offense and a group offense. And so as an individual, if you do something to somebody else, your mom can't take your place you're going to have to deal with that situation yourself. But if you're in a group, then the group itself is held accountable. Let me see if I can clarify this a little bit. So humanity as a group has sinned. And you notice that throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, you always have these plural pronouns, right? Like, for example, our sin. You know, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? It's a we Paul doesn't say, I have sinned and fallen short. That's true too. But he he thinks in terms of we's, and that's more the Hebrew mindset. And so humanity as a group has sinned. We call it the fall. And as a human, Jesus is a member of the group. Jesus is part of the team. He's on our team. He's a member of the human race. You got me? As our CEO slash Messiah, Jesus can take responsibility for the group either by making satisfaction or suffering the penalty. Whichever way you want to go with it, Thoreau's idea works both ways. Basically, what his theory is, is an upgrade to penal substitution or satisfaction. Whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant, you can sort of like upgrade to 2.0 by taking on his way of communally thinking about the whole system. Individuals can participate and appropriate through faith and repentance. So what happens is Jesus does not die for your individual sins. Jesus dies for sin with a capital S. He dies for the the sins of humanity. And so just think of it like a, a naughty company that pollutes a river. So now the government says, you need to say you're sorry, you need to stop polluting, you need to train your employees on proper protocol so you don't pollute in the future, and you need to pay this penalty, this fine. What's the company gonna do? Are they going to do an internal investigation and find out who was involved? Well, maybe, but they don't have to. You know, maybe the people that were involved no longer even work there. But they still have to take responsibility, don't they? Because it was that same company that committed. Now, let's say the company decides to pay it out of their profits. They can do that if they want. Or they can single out the individuals involved and force them to pay the fine. Or they can fire people. You know, there are lots of different ways they could deal with it internally. The government doesn't really care so long as they pay the penalty and change their ways, right? Now, the simple fact of the matter is that the company can pay the penalty or one individual from the company could pay. Say one person in the company is very wealthy 
And they're like, I love this company. I don't want to see the stock prices fall. I'm going to pay this fine out of my own money. I'm a member of the company, though. So I qualify as a member of the group who could pay. Now, let's say it's the CEO, as so often happens with uh, Volkswagen recently. Didn't that happen? The CEO claimed he had nothing to do with it, but he still had to step down. The CEO is the representative, not necessarily the substitute, but the representative of the group. And that is what Messiah is. Messiah is nothing if not a representative of the group of Israel. As the representative, he can say, I will take the penalty for the group. Now, individuals within the group still have to appropriate that or participate in that reality by repenting and asking for forgiveness. And so what's so slick about community substitution or communal substitution is that God can get his satisfaction, his justice, and at the same time, we can individually repent and be forgiven individually as we participate in that payment already made on behalf of the group. And it avoids the justice worry because Jesus, although he is innocent, he is a representative. And we recognize that representatives can take responsibility for the people they represent when those people are bad or do bad things. I think it's a very worthwhile theory to to think about. And he has a paper that I cited as well that you can look up online. Here are some criticisms. What Thoreau says is that what makes Jesus a fitting representative is that one, he is a legitimate member of humanity. And then he says, two, Thoreau says that Christ is the creator of humanity and therefore he's causally responsible. I'm going to go ahead and criticize that and say that Christ does not have to be the creator of humanity or causally responsible for humanity if God appoints him as our leader. If somebody is an appointed leader, if, if we all in this room designate Dan Gill as our leader, he doesn't have to be causally responsible for us all gathering here. He doesn't have to be the one who sent out the emails and did the registration to bring us together for the theological conference. We can appoint Dan Gill as our leader to go apologize to the staff for not busting our tables diligently. Even if Dan himself has bust his table diligently this whole time. He can do that because we've appointed him. We've agreed that he's our leader. He represents us. He has such a gentle demeanor that he's going to be really good at this. And he's going to appease whatever wrath they may have at us. And then the third one there is God does not really forgive sin if he requires satisfaction. We can get around that. We can say that he requires satisfaction or the penalty, but then he does forgive individuals. He demands justice for the group and then expresses forgiveness for individuals who want to participate in that group of new humanity. All right, so summarizing. Question, why did Jesus die? That's what I'm working on with you here. Part one, we looked at eight non-negotiable biblical facts. Do you remember these? Jesus died to provide eternal life. Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to express love, to defeat evil. So Christus Victor is picking up on that defeat evil, right? He died to provide an example. That's moral exemplar. He died to justify us apart from the law. He died to free us from sin, to live righteously, and he died for our sins. Then we looked at these seven atonement theories. We looked at ransom, Christus Victor, moral exemplar, satisfaction, penal substitution, governmental, and communal substitution. Let me offer a tentative conclusion. And like I said to you before, I'm not trying to promote a definitive position. I'm trying to give you a lay of the land so that you can work this out and we can think about this together as a group. So combining the best, this is my three-paragraph effort to do that. I begin with communal substitution. 
This is not really its own theory, but an alteration or upgrade to either satisfaction or penal substitution. The latter of these insists that Christ took the punishment for sin upon himself in our place. In light of Isaiah 53, I find it difficult to deny such is the case. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. It says a lot of other similar things, but that's a very clear statement to me that he did suffer a penalty, a punishment, piercing. He was killed. That's a punishment, right? He did that for us. It wasn't for himself. It was for us. So I think I, I want to stick with the penalty aspect here. However, I'm not at all convinced that God poured out his wrath on his beloved son while he hung on the cross, blood and sweat dripping from his brow. After all, the penalty for sin is death, not wrath. Christ propitiates God's wrath against the group by taking upon himself the death penalty as humanity's God-appointed representative. So I think he does propitiate, but not wrath directed at him, but wrath directed at us. We're the ones that have raised God's ire. Additionally, as a biblical Unitarian, I cannot accept the Trinitarian concept of God dying for us. That's kind of an obvious statement, I guess. This frees me from dealing with the devastating disadvantages I outlined in the excursus, intra-Trinitarian logical absurdities, devaluing the cross, and contradicting immortality. However, I still have to deal with the question of how a mere man can pay for the sins of the world. I believe the communal view makes great strides in that direction, but in the end, we cannot say that the penalty he suffered on behalf of the group actually equates to the sheer amount of communal offenses. Mankind is excessively wicked and has been so since the beginning. We wage war, murder, rape, torture, deceive, manipulate, abuse, discriminate, and pollute, just to name a few examples of chronic human misbehavior. We constantly dishonor and disregard what God says is right. Consequently, I take refuge in the primary insight of the governmental theory that God exacts payment while simultaneously relaxing it. In the end, God is the moral governor of the cosmos, so he conceives of a way to deal with the separation brought on by sin while showing mercy and justice, as well as displaying the exceeding horror of sin and providing an example to inspire those who would come later. Thus, he not only deals with sin, but he does so in a way that maximally reduces future sin. So pulling it all together, we have a governmental communal penal substitution theory. Alas, such a title is not likely to catch on. So maybe you can do better. If you want to access an electronic copy of this paper, feel free to log on to restitutio.org. And I also have this presentation there for you as well. Thanks. Well, I realized that was a lot of information. And believe it or not, I was being brief on each of these different subjects. The paper itself is much more extensive and it has proper footnotes and references so that you can chase down these various quotes on your own, as well as many more. You can get that at restitutio.org under articles. Take a look at that. It's called Why Did Jesus Die? I also put the second half of the paper in the show notes for this episode so that you can uh, scroll along and see it there. Just before signing off, I did want to once again plug Converge. Uh, it's really been a little disheartening uh, seeing some resistance here and there. A number of uh, outspoken folks have criticized this one-time event 
and they they do so from different theological perspectives, which is kind of interesting. So one person will say, well, I don't want to go because so-and-so is going to be there, and he believes this. And then somebody from that other group will say pretty much the same thing, but just with a different belief inserted. Look, we know that One God believers differ on a number of other issues, okay? Converge is not—you don't have to agree with everybody's beliefs in order to fellowship with them. As One God believers, we are less than 1% of Christianity, okay? And what does it say if we can't even get together for one weekend of encouragement in the middle of the summer? What does that say? That says that, oh, we're too divisive to even get together for one weekend. Come on. Is that the message that we want to send to the wider world of Christianity? Or is that something that would please our Lord who prayed that we would be one, even as he is one with the Father? How, how do you think you're ever going to convince anybody of anything other than what they already believe if you don't even go to the event? How are we ever going to find out where we're wrong? Because let's face it, if you think you have it all right and everyone else is wrong except for you— guess what? You better get ready to be humbled because that's <laughs> that's not a sustainable position to have. I don't have that myself. I changed my beliefs and I'm willing to change. I have changed my beliefs and I'm willing to change them again. I realize that's uncomfortable, but you know what? I'd rather, I'd rather be growing than staying where I am if it's not already exactly where God wants me to be. So, Hey, uh, please consider coming. Uh, We could really use your support. I think we've got like 80-something people registered so far, but we're really shooting for a big gathering with lots of people from lots of different groups. In in fact, the people who have registered is interesting. They do come from a lot of different groups, but they're the the broad-minded folks that are not intimidated by sitting in the same room and sharing a meal with somebody who differs with them on their belief about salvation, for example, or baptism. And I think this is really an opportunity to set aside those differences and to gather and be encouraged by what we agree on. We're not going to have somebody get up there and blow everyone out of the water on some controversial doctrinal position. That's not what Converge is about. Converge is about coming together. It's not about blowing us apart. So please consider coming. If you haven't already, check it out at convergefest.com. Like the Facebook page if you want to stay updated on any news and events. And please, 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 if you're already going, register because that really helps us to plan a lot better. And also spread the word, invite others. I mean, this is an event that we have specifically designed for all ages. We're going to have a, a rocking kids program. We're going to have a great afternoon sports and festive games for the family, as well as nerdy theological stuff. And we're going to have opportunities for different groups to have booths so they can share their books and their podcasts and their research that they're doing. And we're going to have quality speakers representing a number of the main groups that are coming to this event. So please come and invite your friends to do the same. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.